0: All right, 1 Corinthians chapter one, verses one through nine. I will read the passage, and then we'll dig right in. so Paul writes, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the Church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints who with uh, with who sorry, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, just a brief, uh, very brief recap last week, because we really didn't really, (laughs) other than going over introductory material about the Church of Corinth, the letter, and everything. We only kind of scratched the surface of the first couple of verses, looking at Paul, looking to whom he was writing. But we're beginning a new study through the book of 1 Corinthians. I don't know how long it'll take. Probably not as long as Romans would be my guess, even though they're both 16 chapters long. Um, But you know, as I said, we did look at some introductory matter regarding the letter last week. We looked at who wrote it, which is Paul. We looked at to whom. Uh, It is to the Church of God, which is in Corinth. We looked at when it was written, approximately 55 A.D., near the end of Paul's second missionary journey, as he was on his way back to uh, Antioch, back to Jerusalem to take the uh, collection that he was collecting back there. And the why, and the why he wrote this letter was because he had received a report from someone's Household named Chloe, this person Chloe, she had more than likely she had a home church or a church in her home, and there were some in that household that sent a letter to Paul with a report speaking of some issues and problems that were going on in the church at Corinth. He also received a letter from the church as a whole itself, asking some questions on things such as spiritual gifts on things such as marriage and and um, abstinence from marriage on things such as food offered to idols, on uh, how to worship properly, the Lord's Supper, resurrection. They had a whole bunch of questions, a whole list of questions. So Paul receives this report from Chloe's household, and he receives this letter from the Corinthian church asking a bunch of questions. So then Paul writes this letter to address both of those issues. So as such, we said that 1 Corinthians is what is called an occasional letter. you know. And I said, I made the joke, not that it's sometimes a letter and sometimes it's not. It's, it's occasional in that Paul is writing to this specific church at this specific time to deal with these specific issues. So it's not a letter like Romans, which gives you sort of a broad scope of uh, Christian theology. It's not a letter like Ephesians, which gives you a broad teaching on the, you know, the, the doctrine of the church. It's a very specific letter dealing with very specific issues, but even because of that, it's still a letter that we could apply to ourselves in this day and age because the problems that are happening in Corinth happen to churches throughout the entire period of church history. And then, like I said, we looked at briefly the first two verses. We're going to look at them again a little bit more today. So as we go into this passage here, as we look at the first nine verses... It's a rather straightforward passage. It is, you know, Paul sends his greetings. He uses a typical first century mode of greeting in a letter. And then he gives some thanksgiving for them. How he thanks God for this church, for how God has blessed this church. So it's, it's really not that difficult of a passage, right? So we've got Paul introduces himself in verse 1. We have Paul addresses the church in verses 2 and 3, and then Paul thanks God for this church in verses 4 through 9. But even though it's a pretty standard uh, letter opening, epistolary opening, um, in it we see hints of some of the problems that are brewing under the surface in the Corinthian church that Paul is going to deal with. So he speaks, he kind of addresses some of these subjects in a very offhanded way in his greeting in his uh, thanksgiving of the church, it's sort of like when you want to make a kid take medicine, right? You put it sometimes, you put the pill in some candy or a piece of bread or something that they like so that they swallow the bitter pill of what they need to hear. So Paul is about to give them some hard truth in this letter, but he kind of sugarcoats it in the, in the introduction by saying how he still thanks God for them. How they're still a gifted church, how they are still sanctified, how they're still saints. And this church was very blessed, very gifted, but they were also arrogant, they were also immature, and they had some wrong ways of thinking about certain things. Their their background in pagan philosophy sort of informed how they acted in various situations in the church. We'll see this in regards to sexual immorality in chapters 5 and 6. We'll see this in regard to um, the spiritual gifts. We'll see this in regard to how they understood the resurrection. They didn't seem to have so much a problem with Jesus' resurrection as much as they had a problem with the resurrection of believers themselves. And Paul's like, you know, if, you know why would you have this problem? So he'll address that in chapter 15. So let's first look at verse 1 as we see Paul who is a called apostle. Um, Again, very common in 1st century letter writing, you begin a letter by introducing yourself. And Paul begins by introducing himself in verse 1, where he says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, now, in in and of itself, it's not an unusual greeting. Because if you were just to maybe skim through some of the other letters, you could see that's kind of how Paul, that's almost like his standard greeting. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother. Or to the church in Galatia. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me. So a little more beefy there. Uh, Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. So it's not uncommon for Paul to start a letter that way. And we all know about Paul from the book of Acts, right? Paul was Saul the Pharisee. He was a student of the famed uh, Jewish rabbi Gamaliel. We learned that in Acts as well uh, and in Galatians 2. Paul was a very zealous Jew. And in my notes, I have zealous in all capitals because that's how zealous he was. He was zealous. He was a very zealous Jew. Zealous about his own righteousness. If you, again, if you look at his own sort of resume in Philippians 3, he talks about he was blameless before the law, how as zealous, he was a persecutor of the church. He took great pride in his religious pedigree. And, you know, and part of that was that he was a persecutor of the church. He was zealous about defending his faith, his own religion. And even on the way to persecuting some Christians in Damascus, that's when he gets that close encounter of the Jesus kind, where Jesus appears to him as a bright light, blinds him, knocks him off his, his donkey, and converts him there on the spot. It's an encounter that's recorded in Acts chapter 9. That encounter turned Paul's life upside down, and it turned, in a sense, the whole world upside down. Because that's one of the things that you see in the, later in the book of Acts, as Paul is preaching in, in Corinth and in Ephesus, People complain. It says, this man has turned the whole world upside down with his teaching. He was called an apostle. And all of that is contained in that phrase. Called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And that word called, kletos, speaks of a summons, a royal divine invitation. But this is not one that you RSVP and you can say no. Okay, <laughs> This was a, you will be my apostle. And Paul is like, Okay, I will be your apostle. You don't say no to the great king. And again, if you think about it, if you read through Acts nine, if you you know you you can just ask yourself the question: Did Paul really have any choice in this matter, as as God or as the as the risen Christ is speaking to? Um, I forget the guy's name. The guy in in Damascus where Paul has to go and and seek refuge in. That person is speaking, uh, Jesus is speaking to that person. And the Lord said to him, Go, for he, that is Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name. So Jesus, speaking to this individual, says that Paul is a chosen vessel of mine. This is a man I have chosen. And I'm going to show him how many things he might suffer. No, how many things he may suffer. No, how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. As we said earlier and last week, there are things in this introduction that will hint at the problems that we will address in this letter. And the Corinthian church here, steeped in that kind of Greco-Roman culture that they were in, Uh, would expect great teachers to come with credentials. They'd have to come with letters of recommendation. They would have to come with some kind of curriculum vitae to show their accomplishments. And what better credentials can you have than to say that you were called to be an apostle by Jesus Christ Himself according to the will of God? And that phrase, the will of God, by the will of God, indicates that this apostolic call comes from the highest source available in the universe the creator of all things it is his will that Paul should have been an apostle again consider how little Paul had control he had in acts chapter 9 it wasn't like jesus goes up to paul on the road to damascus and says Hey, Paul, I don't know if you're not busy doing anything for the next few years, but would you mind being my apostle to the Gentiles? I, I, think, it might be, I think it might work. I think this might be a good idea. If you Would you, know, would you consent to that? That's not how it happened. No, <laughs> Jesus had to take this stubborn, arrogant, zealous Pharisee and break him in a sense. I mean, Paul's conversion is about as dramatic a conversion story as ever was told. I don't know if I've heard any conversion story like it. you know, And I don't think we should expect any conversion story to be quite like this. This was a very special occasion. And as I like to say, without Jesus' intervention in Paul's life, he would have remained a happy Pharisee, going around persecuting the church, and he would have been happy with that call in his life. So Paul, in the very first words from his pen, is asserting his apostolic credentials to this church he's giving his his cv his curriculum vitae he's giving his bona fides to this church i am an apostle of jesus christ called by the will of god now this was mentioned last week but beginning in chapter 1 verse 10 and going all the way through chapter 6 verse 20 paul will be addressing these issues these concerns raised by them which are of the house of chloe you'll see that in verse 11 right for it has been declared to me concerning you my brethren by those of chloe's household that there are contentions among you and that's going to take him from 1 verse 10 all the way through 6 verse 20 the first mm, half ish of the letter is addressing this report from chloe's household and first on that list of concerns are these divisions that are popping up in this church over various popular Christian teachers. And Paul here stresses his apostolic authority to this church uh, to show that the church of Jesus Christ is not splintered. It is not something that is for, where you form certain cliques and certain uh, cults of personality over various teachers. These, the, the, all of these teachers, Paul will say later on, are servants, just as I am a servant, called by Christ according to the will of God. And then he says, I'm also here with my friend Sosthenes who is a fellow Christian. Sosthenes is not a co-author. He's just there in Ephesus when Paul is writing this letter. <coughs> Now, let's move on to verses 2 and 3 as we look at a sanctified church. Now, as it might be plainly obvious here, Paul writes 1 Corinthians to the church of God which is in Corinth. Kind of fitting that the name of the letter, Corinthians, is the same name as the name of the city where the church resides. Verse 2 To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Now here's, your, here's the answer to your question, Fred. When Paul writes to the church of God which is at Corinth, we should not understand that he is writing to a single church, but more than likely a collection of house churches. Okay, People met in various homes, Chloe's household, other people's homes. Um, by calling them the church at Corinth, Paul is addressing these various home groups Collectively, because they're all within the city of Corinth, and they're all part of the Church of God, which is at Corinth, even though it meets in these various households. Because at this time in history, the mid-first century, 55 AD, give or take, the Christian movement is still not fully accepted in popular culture. And really, has it ever been fully accepted in popular culture? Probably not. But... The Christian religion, the Christian faith, doesn't become accepted in the Roman Empire until the year 313 A.D. when the Edict of Milan is issued by Constantine the Emperor. So you're talking that's, over two, that's about 250, 260 years later that Christianity finally becomes something that is allowed in the Empire. And it doesn't become the official religion of the Roman Empire until 380 AD under the emperor Theodosius. So until that time, so you're still looking at 260 years, 320 years later, you're looking at a period of time where the church has faced periods of intense persecution and periods of relative peace. I say relative peace meaning that you you don't see empire-wide persecution, but probably little pockets of it from in place to place. And in 55 AD, in the city of Corinth, which was a Roman colony, which was a very Greco-Roman city, very again a very cosmopolitan city, a very a city that uh, had a lot of uh, industry, a lot of relig- other religions, a lot of uh, culture, you know, the arts, music, sports. It's, it really is a lot like any modern-day big city. So in a church in, in 55 AD, in the city of Corinth, the church would meet in homes due to the general dislike and suspicion that Christians received at the hands of both Jews and Gentiles. You see, to the Jews, the Christians were considered, you are were, you were a splinter group. You are not really, you know, you, you come from you know, Judaism, but you're not Jews. And to the Gentiles, they would look at the Christians and say, Well, you you don't worship the Roman gods? Well, you're atheists, which is kind of ironic (laughs) that Christians would be considered atheists, but they were atheists because they did not worship the Roman gods, the Greek gods. So they would have received uh, suspicion and dislike from both parties. Now, I want to focus on a few things in verse 2 that also hint at and foreshadow where Paul will direct his apostolic you know, laser beams <laughs> throughout the rest of this letter. Notice he doesn't say to the church which is at Corinth. He says to the church of God which is at Corinth. The church is not the Corinthians' church. It is not Paul's church. It is not Peter's church. It is not the church of Apollos. It is the church of God. It is God's church, and that word "church" in Greek "ekklesia." You know, a lot of people like to say, "Well, you've got the word "ek," which means from, and you've got the word kleo, which means call. So it's the called out from the world people." Yeah, kind of. Really, the word "ekklesia" is used to translate a couple of uh, Hebrew words, "kahal" and ada, which just talk about the assembly. And and the church really is. The assembly of the people of God. The people of God assembled together to worship God. So, this is God's church. It is not Paul's church. Jesus is the one who promised to build the church. We don't build the church, we are the tools that God uses to build the church. You don't say, This hammer built this chair or whatever, this saw built this chair. You would say, I built this chair and I used this hammer, I used this saw, and I used these nails. So it's the same thing. We are the saw, the hammer, and the nails that Christ uses to build His church. So part of combating the sectarianism that we're going to see here, where we saw again in verse 11 that there are contentions among you or quarrels among you, uh, part of combating this Sectarianism and divisions is recognizing that this is God's church. God's church. And this is eminently applicable to us today with the advent of denominationalism. You know, people say, look how splintered the church is. How many denominations are there? I don't know. Hundreds? Thousands? You know, they're they're kind of it feels like they're popping up all the time because you've got, you know. You know, Church of the Way of God, you know, you know, number one, and then you've got people who split off from that and form the Church of the Way to God number two, and then you've got people from both that don't like either one, they form Church of the Way of God Way to God number three. You know, I mean it it seems like churches and denominations are popping up all over the place. Now it's not that denominations are necessarily bad. In fact, they might be even necessary for people who have sort of the same theological views on worship and things to worship together. right? You wouldn't expect Baptists to worship together with Reformed people. We could do many things together, but not necessarily worship because we differ on certain things. We differ on church government. We differ on how baptism is applied to people in the church. So it's okay to have those splits where you have these theological uh, convictions. But, having said that, we must not think that Emmanuel Reformed Church or the Reformed Church in the United States is the true church and that everyone else is just playing church. We're the Reformed and everyone else are just, well, you're just sort of, you know, you're pretenders. That's not how we should think because this is the church of God. Not the Reformed Church, not the Baptist Church, not the Presbyterian Church, the Episcopal Church, the Methodist Church. Pentecostal Church, you know, the Assemblies of God Church. We are the Church of God. And note too how Paul says, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And again, that's to tell these people in Corinth, you are part of a bigger collection of saints. It's not just your church is here in Corinth. But you are connected because you and everyone else who calls upon the name of the Lord, those who are in Berea, those who are in Philippi, those who are in Thessalonica, those who are across the Aegean Sea in Ephesus and Laodicea and Colossae, all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are all interconnected. The church of Corinth needed to see themselves as part of this larger collection of saints They are one thread in this great tapestry that we see. And again, that's something we need to be attentive to as well. We are not the true Christians, okay, just because we go to the Reformed Church. We are part of a greater group of people, all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this idea of seeing ourselves as part of a bigger picture, that's something I think, at least Reformed and Presbyterian denominations, I think, get right. Because they see, you know, when you look at how we're collected, we have individual churches, then you have the classes, then you have the, the synod. Or in the Presbyterian model, you have the individual churches, then you have the presbytery, then you have the general assembly. This idea sees, like, as the individual church, you are part of a bigger collection. You know, so that the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And as a collection... We can do things on a much larger scale than an individual church can do. And that's, you know, there are some who don't hold to that sort of mode of how the churches should be organized. They only see the churches as individual. We are independent. Now, we may work with other churches, but you know, we're sort of the self-contained, hermetically sealed church in this location. It's like, how much can they do? And they may be able to do a lot. But if you have a group of four or five or ten or a hundred or a thousand churches together, you could do so much more when you pull all these resources together. And that's what Paul is trying to get at here. You need to understand that you are called to be saints along with everyone else who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Another thing we noted last week and we'll expand on here, is that when Paul refers to the Corinthians as sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, that word sanctified and saints, those are English words that are used to translate two words that are you know, they're related in the Greek language. You've got hagiazo and hagios. That, you know, that the, those words carry two basic meanings. They can mean holy and pure, or it can mean set apart, hallowed for a sacred, not a secular or mundane use. And that's what Paul's using here. He's saying, look, you are the church of God here in Corinth. You are sanctified. God has set His seal upon you. The Holy Spirit resides on you. You have been made, in a sense, holy and set apart for God's use. You are saints. You are set apart. You are you know, for God's specific purpose. Think about... Exodus 3, right? Moses sees the burning bush and the burning bush speaks to him. And the burning bush says to to Moses, take off your sandals because the ground you're standing upon is holy ground. Why was it holy ground? Because God was there. Exactly. Before God was there, was it holy ground? No. It was just ground. It was just dirt (laughs) with a bush. (laughs) God was there. He manifested Himself there. It becomes holy ground. When God sets a seal upon us, we become, in that sense, holy. Not that we are morally and sinlessly perfect. That is the process of sanctification. But there is a sense in which when God sets a seal upon us, we are sanctified, we are set apart, we are called out of the world for God's special use. So with all of the problems that this church was going through, and it's going through a lot of problems, okay, this is a problem child, right? We looked at it last week, Paul wrote more than likely at least four letters to this church, because he mentions a letter that he previously wrote in chapter 5, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians, and then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 he mentions a tearful letter that he wrote, and we don't have those letters, so you know and i made the jokes like 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is really 4 Corinthians but he wrote a lot of letters to this church this is a problem church he spent 18 months with this church and you know as i also mentioned last week when you have multiple children if you've got one child that's the problem child guess what that child will occupy probably most of your time because you do, you're not too worried you know, when you have multiple children, you're not too worried about the children that obey you and, and do the, you know, everything right. You just tell them what to do, they do it. It's the one that you tell what to do and they go off and do something else or don't want to do it or do it wrong. That's the one you've got to watch out for and you spend a lot of time with them. So this church had problems, yet Paul still recognizes that they are saints, that they are called out, that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Their practice might not match their position in Christ, but they are still sanctified. And that is a great comfort for you and for me, because like the Corinthian church, we, you and me, we are all works in progress, right? Some of us are further along than others, but we are all works in progress. We don't need to be perfect in this life because we can't be perfect in this life anyway, But we are still sanctified. We are still saints because the Holy Spirit resides in us. Then Paul closes in verse 3 his greeting with a standard greeting here. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we could examine this in great minute detail. What it means that grace and peace come from God and from Jesus Christ. And I don't want to minimize this fact. But really this is just a standard greeting. If you were to look at every one of Paul's letters it would have almost exactly these same words doesn't mean that Paul is, you know, not, uh, you know, he's not sincere when he says these things. It's just that he's, he's just saying grace and peace to you. You know, welcome, hello, I'm Paul to the church in Corinth, grace and peace to you. It's a standard epistolary greeting. Um, but it is, you know, we could say, that, you know, that God is the source of all grace, right? Grace and peace from God our Father. So, all grace, unmerited favor, comes from God. And it's all rooted in our uh, relationship with Jesus Christ, in our union with Christ, in the life and work of Christ. That peace that we have is rooted in that. So, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now, finally, let us look at a gracious God in verses 4 through 9. Another standard feature in Paul's letters is typically a section of thanksgiving and sometimes prayer. Um, Like Ephesians, he's got some beautiful prayers in there. Um, But here we see in verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. And again, this is also something Paul says in almost every one of his letters. And again, he doesn't mean it insincerely. Paul, who exhorts us to pray without ceasing, right? Who continually, uh, pray, he continually prays for his dear spiritual children. Whenever he's praying, he probably remembers, oh yeah, the saints at Corinth, they need prayer. So, I th- and he, But he's also very thankful to them as well. He is thankful for the grace of God that is mediated to them through Jesus Christ and that has been lavished on this fledgling church. And we're going to look at that in a moment here. Because Paul here in verse 5 mentions just how they have been graced by God in Christ. That you are enriched in everything. Not enriched in some things. Not enriched in one or two things. In everything. By Him, God, in all utterance and knowledge. In all speech and in all knowledge. And that word enriched translates a word, Plutidzo, which means to be made rich. To be fully furnished, to be richly equipped and enriched. And this, Christian, this Corinthian church was enriched. Now, it's also passive. They didn't enrich themselves. It was God who enriched them. And not just with material wealth. And we'll find this out later. They are a wealthy church. Okay, They are a very wealthy church. They have some you know, very wealthy people in the church, and they are materially wealthy. But also, with spiritual riches... They were an extremely gifted church. And it's evident, as we'll see when we get to chapters 12-14, through how gifted this church was in the spiritual gifts. But when Paul says that they were enriched, it means that everything that's special about this group of Christians came from God. God enriched you. You're not special because you're Corinthians. You're special because God enriched you. If you want, you can turn there, but if you flip over a couple pages to 1 Corinthians 4, verses 7 and 8, this is Paul sort of concluding this section on the the divisions in the church. But he says to them in verse 7, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Right? Everything they have, they have received and they received it from the hand of god now if you did indeed receive it why do you boast as if you had not received it again their arrogance right they saw how how blessed they were how enriched they were how wealthy they were and like you know sort of like nebuchadnezzar right in chapter 4 when he gets turned into a wild beast before that nebuchadnezzar is walking along his palace and he's like Look at this kingdom that I have built. And God says, you didn't build it. I allowed you to build it. And then he turns him into a wild animal, right? Turns him basically into like a crazy Howard Hughes where the hair was growing all over the place and his nails were long and disgusting and all that stuff. And here Paul's like, why do you boast as if you did not receive all of these blessings? And then in verse 8, you are already full. You are already rich. He's saying this sarcastically as if you think... You've got everything you need. You think you have, you're have. you full. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. So Paul is saying, like, it would be wonderful if you were kings and you did reign, because then we would be reigning with you. That would mean Jesus is here, and you know, the kingdom's been established, and we reign with him. So, they were an arrogant church because of their giftedness in all utterance and speech. And it was a misplaced arrogance because they were recipients of God's abundant grace and mercy. And because of this fact that the Corinthian church has been enriched, Paul then can say that the testimony of Christ was confirmed in them. Verses 6 through 8. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the ministry of Paul among the Corinthians was fruitful as evidenced by the enriching of the believers in all utterance and all knowledge. In other words, the, the proof was in the pudding. Right, Paul preached the gospel to them and it took root. And as we see throughout the book of Acts, oftentimes when Paul you know preached to the Gentiles, the Spirit would come upon them and they would start speaking in tongues and displaying gifts of the Spirit. Well, the same thing here in Corinth. They were they evidenced that the testimony was received because of their fruitfulness, their their giftedness. They were again extremely gifted. An abundance of spiritual gifts is manifest. And again, we'll see that in chapters 12 through 14. <clears throat> That's why Paul can say, You come short in no gift, right? You know, you, you have, the, at least from my perspective, Paul's saying, You have the complete, you know, uh, gamut of spiritual gifts. The whole panoply of spiritual gifts is manifested in your church. There was no lack, no missing pieces. All types of gifts were represented at Corinth. And then Paul says in the last half of seven, there verse seven, "You are eagerly waiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ." Now, when I read that, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Jesus' parable of the talents. Okay, it's a well-known parable. It's in Matthew twenty-five. I think it's in Luke somewhere. I don't know exactly the, the reference. But in that parable, Jesus—it's—it's a, it's a parable of preparedness, because Jesus in Matthew's gospel tells it in his Olivet discourse. So it's a parable of being prepared when Jesus returns, right? And he, and he says the story: is that there's a master who calls his servants together, gives them talents, gives them gifts, and says, "Take these gifts." and use them and invest them in the work of the kingdom, and then when I return, you know we'll settle all the scores. So he gives five to one, two to another, and then one to a third. It's just to show that even though we're all gifted, there are various gifts. Some are more gifted than others in some things, and some not as much as others in other things. It's God who gives the gifts. He can give them as he desires. He goes away, then he returns after a long period of time. Now he's settling the accounts, and he calls the servants together. And the first two are like, Master, the gift you gave me has returned an investment. Here it is. I give back to you what, what, it, what this gift has made. And in the first two he says, well, down, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And then the third one says, says, Well, you are kind of a mean guy, and I took your gift, and I didn't want to lose it, so I buried it in the ground, and now here's your gift back. And then he says to that person, You think I was a mean guy? You know, you don't know me. It's like, you should have at least invested this in the bank and I would have gotten a little bit of interest. Even in today's economy, he might have, would have gotten 0.001% return on, on his investment. That's what we're seeing here, right? The servants were instructed to work until the Master returns, to put the gifts to work for the Master. And the Corinthian church has been given many gifts. And Paul is saying here, now you, are, you ought to be eagerly awaiting the Lord It's sort of like a gentle rebuke to get the purpose and the use of these spiritual gifts right. Your giftedness as a church is not so you can compare yourselves one to another and say, I have this gift, you don't, I'm a better Christian than you. No, it's to use that gift that the Lord gives you for the work of the church until the Master returns. And then in verse 8, Paul acknowledges that even though the Corinthians are an arrogant, immature collection of believers, Jesus will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we're all works in progress, right? We're all being formed and sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul will say in Philippians, that work that God begins in you, He will be faithful to finish on the day of Christ's return. And it's comforting to know Uh, at least for me at least, that if a church like Corinth with all of its problems can expect to be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, then that's good news for you and me, right? It means that we too will be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all may be works in progress, but like this Corinthian church, some of us might require a little more work than others. (laughs) Then Paul closes in verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I love that phrase there. God is faithful. Right? be a great spot for an amen. God is faithful, right? Amen. Okay. God has called the Corinthians. He has called you. He has called me into the fellowship, the koinonia of His Son. Again, this harkens back to the idea that the church of God in Corinth and how we're all called to be saints along with all who call upon the name of the Lord. Another reminder that the church of Jesus Christ is bigger than the church in Corinth, the church in Rome, the church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, the church of Emmanuel Reformed Church here in Sutton, the church of Hope Reformed Church here in Sutton, the RCUS. We are part of a larger communion of saints that encompasses people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Past, present, and future. So, as we bring this to a close, this greeting here sets up again a lot of themes that we're going to see now run throughout 1 Corinthians as we go on our journey, as we begin our journey here. And even though this letter is occasional, it is still very applicable for us here in the 21st century. Because the problems that are here in Corinth are not just specific to the church in Corinth, they are problems that churches everywhere face. At all times, right? It's applicable here to us here in the 21st century, because there are plenty of modern-day churches that, are, that deal with internal strife, that deal with, well, I like Pastor So-and-So I don't like the other pastor." Or "I like you know listening to this dude on the radio. I don't really like the pastor at my own church." Or there's all kinds of immaturity at the church in, the, in any church. My prayer is that as we go through this letter, that we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us afresh as we read the, the verses. As we go through these verses in this study throughout First Corinthians. So next time, uh, not next week. Next week is Mission Fest, so next week uh, we'll have Reverend Andrew Compton here. He'll be doing something for Sunday School, but in two weeks, the twenty fourth, we'll uh, look at. We'll pick up in verse ten and probably go through verse seventeen as we look at the initial talking about sectarianism